You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 431, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Since transitioning careers by way of bootcamp in 2018, Mina Slater has continued to grow as a developer and consultant with specific interest in the backend and Ruby on Rails. She values collaboration and software development as a team sport through pairing and engagement with the Ruby and Rails community. Currently, she's a developer with Mission Control, ThoughtBot's DevOps and SRE team, and serves as a scholarship program organizer with Ruby Central. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Mina. Thanks, Brittany. I'm really excited to be here. I'm joining you from Chicago today, bright and early in the morning. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining me early. I appreciate it. And Mina, you are someone that I've actually met in person before having on the show, which is very different for me. And I feel like we vibe so well. And so I'm particularly interested to hear your developer origin story. Yeah, absolutely. It was such a great time meeting you, Brittany, at RailsCo. It felt like I already knew you, to be honest, like the first time we met in person. So, well, my developer origin story, I love how you make it sound like I'm a superhero. You are. Um, with the, <laughs> thanks, <laughs> with the origin story vocab. I'm a superhero fan. How did I get into development? I was working in theater management for a long time prior to transitioning careers into tech. And a lot of the things that created the burnout in my theater career and that eventually led to the career transition is very informative for me in how I wanted to approach my developer career. And so like a lot of people, I think I had a previous career that didn't work out. And at the time when I started to realize that career wasn't working for me personally, was also when a lot of people around me were going through boot camps. And my husband, Aji Slater, is also a Rails developer and he had gone through the career transition couple years before I decided to. And so originally it was learning to code was a way to understand what he was going through in his career because I didn't understand what he did at that time for a living. It felt like he was typing some things into a computer and then magic happens. So in an attempt to connect with him on that level, I was like, yeah, show me some things about code. And then realizing that it's just like solving logic puzzles and solving problems, which are both things I like to do and in a way good at. So, I mean, seeked out a bootcamp, went for an apprenticeship. I was really lucky to get connected with companies that jive with my personal values and the rest is history, as they say. So I have so many follow-up questions to that. First of all, was there any question whether or not Aji was going to direct you to the Ruby and Rails community? Definitely the first starting with him teaching me the basics started me in Rails because that's what he was working in. Naturally, it was what he was using to kind of give me introduction to coding. That gave me sort of the basics in Rails and Ruby that then eventually kind of led to my love for the language and framework and discovering the community and whatnot. And it's such a great community. So like, I don't ever want to leave. But in the same process, we also learned, I think, a lot about ourselves and our relationship in that it's hard for people who are in a close, intimate relationship like that to kind of 
teach each other things. So that part of it led me to then eventually seek out a boot camp rather than self-study with his guidance. You know, I'm also in a relationship with a software developer and there are times where I get stuck on like a command line thing that Mike writes PHP for a living. He's always joked that he's going to join the Ruby community and I fight him. And I really should welcome into the Ruby community. It's probably one of my worst traits. <laughs> but it's funny because like I also get a little defensive because like there's a certain point where I love to get his help around something on the command line. But, you know, I still really want to learn something on my own and I want it to be my own. Like I want it to yeah. be my own journey. So it's nice having the support, but it's good to have the separation. Yeah. And I think the funny thing about that is like when I was brand new to it, we had some difficulty with the like teacher-student kind of dynamic. We met at work originally when we were both in the arts and now we are on our second tech company. We came from the same consultancy into ThoughtBot. Now we both are developers at ThoughtBot, albeit on different teams. And now that I'm a little bit, I think, more knowledgeable it's a really actually a great working relationship because we help each other with problems in code that we're seeing or team dynamic. So it's really nice to speak that same language, you know? That's so fantastic. So <laughs> Mina, this speaks to my heart, but I want to hear your thoughts on this. Why do you deviate towards the back end as opposed to the front end? I think when I kind of like do some kind of introspective and I think about myself, I really love the instant gratification of like seeing whether some changes I made had the effect I intended. So on the surface, I feel like you hear that and you're like, oh yeah, I mean, I like the front end is the place for you. But I have struggled as a consultant. The idea is that you are for the most part, at least comfortable enough in the full stack, just because you don't always know what type of project you are going to be staffed on and what problems you might look to solve. This is a theory that actually Audrey and I have come up with in some of our conversations together. So this is the first time we're talking about it, maybe like in public. So it might sound a little out there. I don't know if you have seen, but I saw on Twitter a while ago, somebody had posted a series of Apple drawings ranging from like very abstract all the way to like a very realistic apple at the end of that scale. And the question that was posted along with this image was when you are thinking of an apple in your mind, the image that's in your head, where on this scale does it fall? And that was the moment I realized that people, other people, not me, can see images in their mind. When you think about it, Brittany, how realistic is that apple in your head? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel <laughs> like it's fairly realistic. I'm definitely more of a forest than a trees type person, though. Mm -hmm. Anytime I've taken yeah. those personality tests. I think for me, the back end, it's just very factual. I think that there is an art and a craft to writing back end code. But the thing that I've always struggled with the front end is it's such an opinion. You could design a beautiful web page and someone could find it to be absolute trash. And <laughs> so for me, you know, like if I run your credit card and I charge you the correct amount with tax and shipping mm -hmm. and it's correct, I feel really good about myself. Yeah. So that's the moment I realized that like I am not a visual 
thinker. I'm more like, like you said, a factual and ideas thinker. So I think that the back end jives with that way of thinking a lot more logically versus the sort of like visual aspect that's potentially needed for front end development. So that's our current theory. So that is a work in progress, but I think originally my struggle was with CSS. <laughs> I think <laughs> gif of Peter Griffin struggling with the curtain. We are all familiar with that one. So I hear you, yeah. Dana. I think for me too, and I'll just put it out there. I ran into someone from high school a couple of years ago and they were asking what I was doing. And I told them that I was a web developer. And at the time I was working specifically as the lead backend developer at a nonprofit. And so he looked at me and he goes, you must be a front end developer. And I was like, why? And he's like, because you're a woman. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, how incredibly unfair that is. And it almost put a little bit of fire behind me being like, I need to keep writing back end code. I think it's important that we see a balance on that front, too. I think front end developers are incredibly talented, but we need to see that balance across. Yeah, absolutely. And now that you mentioned that, I feel like that is probably in the back of my mind, part of the early motivator for me deviating towards the back end. I've always been driven by that kind of thing, right? Like the opposite of what people expect of me. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This episode is brought to you by Honey Badger. Whether you need to let your users know of upcoming downtime for system maintenance or something more serious like a multi-week security incident, public status pages are awesome for building transparency and trust with your users. HoneyBadger now has a new status page feature, Incident Management. What's even better? Incident Management is already included in all of HoneyBadger's current plans for free. I also wanted to remind you, dear listeners, how great the HoneyBadger blog is. The recent articles on full-text search and Elasticsearch and comparing React component libraries are now in my bookmarks. Head on over to honeybadger.io to learn more. Well, you and I like the back end so much that <laughs> we have invested some of our career to go even further back into there and into the DevOps realm. And so it seems like you've hit a time in your career where you felt that it was time to embrace the cloud. So how did you approach that, Mina? It has been a long journey. I was introduced to DevOps and the cloud pretty early on in my career as something someone else did. And I worked with a developer who came from some DevOps experience. At the time on our team, she was a Rails developer and a consultant like everyone else, but she came from a previous role that required her to get familiar with DevOps tasks and skills. So I think from her, she gave me a little bit of guidance about how to get started learning that world. And as much help as she gave me, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of DevOps engineers were novices like you and I wanted to get advice about how to learn it. A lot of their response is you just have to start doing it. And like, I get the benefit of like having to kind of learn from experience. It's not necessarily a very action oriented or very helpful in terms of guidance, right? So it took me years of kind of intending to 
dive into that world and not necessarily failing, but not having enough resources to really learn the concept. How I eventually approached it was I wasn't looking for a job. I was the hiring coordinator at my last role. So I troll other people's job sites looking for better ways to word job postings and things like that. So I saw on ThoughtBot's job board that they had an opening for Rails developer interested in DevOps. And that felt like a job that was very written for me. I was a Rails developer. I'm interested in DevOps. Please tell me more. So really, that's my actual first step into that door. I love that because I just love the idea of transition jobs. I tell people like, hey, if you want to become a developer, you might need to take a role where you're doing the thing that you were doing. So say you were a product manager and you want to be a developer. You might end up in a role where you're doing 50% of product management, 50% development. Eventually, you're going to make your way to full development status. And it could yeah. be finance, sales, you know, marketing, anything. And so I love the idea that they put a job description out there where it's something that you already know that you're going to bring value to that job, but it's also going to give you that opportunity very early on to learn something that you're interested in. So smart. Yeah, that's exactly it too. Now that I am part of this team, I am billing client work, meaning I'm doing some Rails development 50% of the time and the other 50% of time is spent pairing with folks who are way more knowledgeable in the DevOps world than I am and learning through experience like everyone else was giving me advice to do and doing some reading and tutorial in that learning journey. So I'm really thankful and very fortunate to have this opportunity, I think. So I'm curious, Mina, DevOps, does it equate to Amazon Web Services or are you doing other things as well? Are you doing things on Heroku, Render, Azure, Google Cloud, or is it pretty focused AWS? It is pretty focused AWS right now. The way our team has set up the platform is we have, well, we, I say we, it's my team, but the decisions and research that gone into those decisions happened before I joined the team. But there is a kind of like baseline platform. If a client brings us a product and say, we want to put it on the cloud, we have a full platform that is going to help them do that. But that is not to say if a client brings us a project that's already in the cloud and it's not on AWS, let's say it's like on Azure or wherever, that doesn't mean we're not going to work with that. And I think there's a big migration right now. I say big, I feel like put that in quotes, maybe migration right now of kind of migrating to full cloud versus going through platforms like Heroku. But yes, it's pretty focused in terms of this is our recommended platform. And these are the skills that you, me, learning should focus on. So we mentioned at the top of the show that you are working with Mission Control. By the way, I love how ThoughtBot named all their departments. I think it's so fun. Um, I think we should be like that in all of our lives. (laughs) But you are to my heart. I bet it does. But you're part of DevOps and the SRE team. And I feel like we throw around the word SRE a lot. So I'd love it, Mina, if you could define that for us. 
SRE, I don't know if everyone knows, stands for Site Reliability Engineering. It is a term that was coined by Google, but that has been adopted pretty widely. And what I know about it now and kind of what is the very accessible and basic definition of it is using metrics that can be shown on graphs or charts to drive development, technical and decisions. So using things like uptime or response time to determine whether there are technical debts to pay down or if there's decisions that... Have you ever heard of the yearly theme? I feel like that is a little bit of what SRE brings to the table. It's a baseline understanding of an expectation for a system and letting like bigger picture decisions come out of the same baseline agreement. Oh, that makes sense. What is a day in the life for you then at ThoughtBot? I think I alluded to it a little bit already. I spent 50% of my time building on client projects. So building things, doing Rails feature development and 50% of my time basically deploying those features that I have developed by pairing with folks who have more experience and have been on the team a little longer in an attempt to learn more about what I hopefully will be doing full-time shortly. With AppSignal, you can monitor your Ruby apps from A to Z, error tracking, performance insights, server metrics, uptime, custom dashboards, you name it, they have it. With their smart what happened here feature, you can see how every moving part was behaving at a specific point in time. Stop digging around and let AppSignal connect the dots for you. Visit appsignal.com slash ROR podcast for more information. As a listener of the Ruby on Rails podcast, you get a 10% discount and a box of sweet treats. That's appsignal.com slash ROR podcast. So when I've worked with people at ThoughtBot before, they've been assigned specifically to one project. I'm curious within mission control, are you assigned to multiple projects at once? How does that work get divided up? Yeah, mission control is a fairly new team. So a lot of our processes and the quote unquote way we do things are in flux, but we currently do work, kind of split our time between projects. I am on to myself right now. One of them is embedded in a bigger development project of other ThoughtBot developers. So I'm working on a small part of a service there. And the other project I'm doing is supporting any kind of an MVP that is in testing that will basically small bugs that come up in their system to make sure that they're testers and users have the intended experience. But I think that we have had a lot of discussions about how that's working and context switching, as you know, is hard. And so I think that is a part of the process that's maybe in iteration. Well, that lends perfectly well. So Mina, you did not realize that you were entering into a debate once you logged into this podcast recording. But I think the listeners have gotten the gist that you love consulting. So product versus consulting, I've done both and I want your hot takes. Why do you love consulting? Okay, I will preface this by saying I have never done product development. So 
I don't want to offend any product developers out there. <laughs> Just me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Fair enough. That's okay. I'm okay with that. I love consulting because not that the problems that we face are any harder than product development, but they are different. They're different problems. When I was originally looking at, when I was baby Mina fresh out of college looking at careers, I landed in theater, like I mentioned, worked in theater for a long time. And part of that decision I remember very vividly was the opportunity to change up what I'm doing every three to four months, because that's just how long a production lasts. And I think what about consulting that appealed to me was the same way that going into theater spoke to me in that I'm granted I'm bringing the same or similar sets of skill from production to production, from project to project, but the breadth of problems that I face from project to project are in my head more interesting. I worked as a theater professional. I worked freelance, so project to project. I have also worked for one company for two years. And I think that maybe is for somebody who has never done product development, the type, what I imagine that experience to be like. In the two years I was with this company, working on their entertainment productions, I got to a place where everything was predictable and I wasn't necessarily being challenged with the unknown. And I think there is something so appealing about ambiguity and the unknown that speaks to me. I love that. No, that makes sense. I've been a consultant before. I did it for a year. And I find the hardest thing to do is be a consultant and talk to a product team who's very nuanced on their product and probably too much so. And so you as a consultant need to convince them to listen to you, that you have experience, you've touched other applications, you know what works. And so having to be almost an influencer, (laughs) as much as I love that word, within an application can be really hard, but it can be really gratifying. So I think I could see the positives of being a consultant. I'm someone who likes to stay with a code base for a while. Mm -hmm. And I imagine when you leave a code base, it's a little bit sad and you Mm -hmm. almost start trusting your baby with someone who says they're going to follow the good habits. Yeah. They're going to follow that direction. You kind of have to have faith that that's going to happen. Is that true? That is true. But also, I like to think that the influence from the start to finish of an engagement with a project or a client has made a difference. I don't often check back on any kind of project that I have staffed on and left, but it does require some kind of belief in human nature or maybe confidence in my skills in kind of leaving a little bit of myself behind and hopefully folks carry that forward. I'm just going to pitch you the idea that there should be a reunion show once a year where you can <laughs> talk to your clients. <laughs> see how they're well, doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, funny you said influence too, because I think one of my colleagues from a previous company had given a lightning talk equating consulting, like software consulting to Queer Eye. She gave it early on when I first joined the company, when I first joined tech, really. And that was the moment that got me to kind of understand 
consulting and what we try to do as a consultant is we're not coming in to flip the table and start from scratch, but rather we're coming in, we're listening to our clients and their concerns and also how they like to work and adapting ourselves to both what they do and bring in a bit of that sort of solution that they're looking for. So as we mentioned, you are the scholarship program organizer with Ruby Central. And so I'd love your thoughts on the future of the Ruby on Rails communities, especially from that standpoint. Yeah, this last RailsConf in May was the first time I have worked with the scholarship committee. And it was such a lovely experience. I have always loved talking to both people who are thinking about learning to code, looking for bootcamp, people who have just graduated from a bootcamp and learning or looking for their first role and wanting to hear about your experience. That's what they always ask is like, what was your experience like looking for a job? So I think working with the scholarship committee has given me access to the diversity of experience and backgrounds people have coming into the Rails community. And it was really eye-opening and a very gratifying experience being able to help them and connect them with their mentors for the conference and seeing that a lot of them carry that mentorship past the end of the conference and into their everyday life. I think the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities is strong. There are a lot of excited people just now learning Ruby and Rails. And I am very honored to have been a part of the journey for our scholars in their next steps. I agree. It's so awesome. And Mina, you happen to be one of my favorite speakers. So I have to ask, <laughs> now that the RubyConf CFP is open, which by the way, listeners, we have RubyConf in Houston and then RubyConf Mini in Providence. Are you planning on applying? That's always the plan. The CFPs, I think, just opened maybe a couple of days ago. So I haven't gotten around to workshopping some of my ideas into proposals yet, but the plan is to apply to speak at RubyConf Mini in Providence, Rhode Island. And thank you for saying that, by the way, that I'm one of your favorite speakers because public speaking doesn't come easily to me. And if any of your listeners feel that speaking at a conference is daunting, I would love to connect with them and talk to them about my experience because it is still daunting to me after several years. Absolutely. I feel exactly the same way. And that lends well to our final question. How can listeners follow you, Mina? Yeah, I am on Twitter at Mina R52A. So that's M-I-N-A-R-528. And that's Twitter. Mina, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Like I said, it was such a joy to meet you in person and was excited to, you know, just hear your entire journey. I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing you speak at RubyConf, fingers crossed. But really, thank you so much for coming here and just really stressing the fact that learning the cloud can be quite humbling, but it's important to do. It's very humbling. It's every day of my life. And thank you so much, Brittany, for having me on. This was really fun and such an honor. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. 
Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.